0: Good morning. Our scripture this morning is Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of of Egypt. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathed this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fire servants among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of the Lord.
1: It's uh, my pleasure this morning to introduce our guest speaker for this morning. Uh, His name is Jay Gurnett, and Jay is someone that I've known for a number of years now, I guess, but uh, really reestablished the connection when I was off on sabbatical last summer and uh, spent some time in conversation with Jay around this idea that uh, even though we're really grateful for how God has guided us and provided for us as a church, Uh, what are some of the changes and new vision and some of the things we'd like to see happen, maybe even to the point where uh, things aren't the same in a couple or a few years as as they are now, that we see some new ministries starting and and other matters. So Jay has been in partnership with us uh, since last summer, uh, talking with a little bit of an ad hoc vision kind of crew we've gotten together. And then uh, today Jay is coming uh, to a meeting this evening with some elders and, and, and some leaders for the church at, at, uh, at our place. So, uh, so we're pleased Jay's in town for a number of things. He's always doing uh, tons of too many events, and you're probably late for something already. Um, but uh, Jay's become a, a good friend and partner in the gospel as well. James Kopp and I, James being one of the elders of the church, are going to a conference, and Jay's uh, part of the leadership of Vision Ministries. I think you've gotten a newsletter from them, and Jay will speak to what Vision Ministries is. But James and I are going to a conference in a few weeks in Waterloo, Ontario, and Jay will be one of the presenters there as well. So, Jay, come on up and just pray for you and for the hearing Super. of the word. Thanks. And many of you have known Jay a lot longer than, than I have, of course, because the connections go way back.
2: And, right? I, and I'm a lot older yeah. as well. So, yeah, right.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Lawrence. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, we pray uh, for Jay as he brings your word to us. We pray that... We often say that your word would be open to us, but of course our our first prayer is that we would be open to your word. And so we pray that you would, by the presence of your Holy Spirit, grant favor in the speaking and the hearing, the listening and the doing. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, for Jay as he he comes to share with us that we would know by your presence and power that uh, we are in this work of your gospel together, and we thank you for him taking the time to do this. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
2: Thanks, sir Todd. It it is good to be here. Um, You know, I I I do talk to leaders time to time, Sutherland-related kinds of folks, but haven't been right here for quite a long time, so it's nice to be back. Um, I'm going to do something that is almost unforgivable, at least when I'm sitting where you are, and that is I'm going to talk about my organization for a few minutes. I will talk about Vision Ministries Canada. you know, and some of you know it and are interested, and some of you are thinking, well, here's a little break where I can get a quick uh, s- snooze or something equivalent to that, right? But, let, but but hear me out just a little bit. Um, Vision Ministries is my people. Um, I've been uh, alongside them for quite a few years, and they've been alongside church planting in Canada now for for 25 years, and that seems to us like a good reason to remind our friends of who we are—a kind of celebratory anniversary time. Now, of course. 25 years isn't really a very big deal. Um, Archie Comics is 75 years old in 2017, as if that matters at all. Um, More significantly, though, of course, Canada is 150 years old. Vision is 25 and Canada is 150, and the Reformation is 500 years old. There's old Martin Luther in the picture. However, like some young people, We're kind of stoked about growing up even to 25 years old, and so we're celebrating a little and looking for some attention. So let me just tell you who we are, and uh, hopefully you'll be interested a bit. Um, We are principally about church planting in Canada. These last few years we've been alongside about about a dozen church plants a year sort of across the country. We're pretty sure that church planting is how God keeps the church as a whole and even the local church healthy. He uses this thing called church planting, always causing new growth, and that keeps things alive. Some other time, I'd happily give you a reasonable biblical and sort of sociological um, case for this. But whether you agree with it or not, it's what we've been doing from the beginning, coming alongside... Um, about a hundred church plants across the country now. Uh, Most of those in the last 15 years, 85 of them are still growing and going, and, and we have a whole bunch more in the hopper of possible church plants. There'll be another dozen this year, I'm pretty sure. Early on we realized that we had to have a partnering network of churches to provide the kind of raw materials of church planting. Because if you want to start new things, you have to have planters, and you have to have core groups, and you have to have mother churches who are willing to sponsor something new, and you have to have funds, all of that stuff. And, and we found that it needed to come from churches, right? I, I've come to love a phrase I learned from philosopher-theologian John Frank, where he talks about this thing that he calls interdependent particularity. It's a weird pair of words, right? But, but we think that independent churches can stay themselves. They can have their own particularity, right? They can be who they are, but move a little distance along the continuum from independence towards interdependence. And when they do that, they can accomplish great things together when there's a little bit of interdependence amongst particular kinds of churches. For example, we put together an initiative with with 18 churches across Canada about four years ago, gradually grew to about 18. Uh, BC churches, Granville Chapel and University Chapel and Lambert Park Church, they're all part of that. Some of you may know some of those other groups. All of them throwing a little bit of money into a common pot Right And then, once or twice a year, deciding how to spend that on new initiatives, well, you know, just four years later, from those eighteen churches, there have been eighteen brand new churches birthed right and this was from a bu- group of churches that leaders that hardly knew each other or barely had been introduced, but they just started to do something together right and the end result was a whole bunch of new things um, here 's the uh, the first Three 2017 initiatives that were approved last November. So here's just some examples of things that are happening across Canada. From those, that's just part of what Vision Ministries does. But from this thing we call moving the mission forward, that first slide is of Kevin, Carolyn, Jolly, and some of the of some of the kids from their Halifax North End Parish Church plant. It doesn't actually have a name yet, but uh, but that's who they are. They're creating an actual church. These two, plus their friends, have been leading running and reading kinds of clubs and youth groups for a few years now. There's some of those kids from the north end of Halifax. VMC partner Grace Chapel in Halifax plus little Mulgrave Park Baptist Church are working together to develop an actual church plant not just some good work that's happening in the neighborhood, right? Hooray for good work and caring for kids. That's right stuff for Christians to be involved in. But now there'll be a church in that community as well. Four weeks ago, I was in Burlington, Ontario. Paul Miller and Angie Kingswood and friends. That's that's Angie with her kids. Paul and Elizabeth have four of their own. They're they're creating the next-door worshiping community in the Aldershot community of... Of uh, Burlington, right? Again, lots of good work was already being done there, the uh, rolling horse bike shop and a good coffee shop, but now it's time to actually worship together. And so Vision Ministries Canada, most of the money is coming from Forest View Church Without Walls, the partner of ours there, but we're adding to the storefront, and there's a second one attached, and now there's going to be a decent kitchen and a good worshiping area where people can gather in groups like something like this. Just a really fun to see these, these, these things come together, you know. Good things start being done, and then they grow into actual communities of followers of Jesus. And finally, uh, for to this morning anyway, Dave and Shana Morgan, and that's with Joa and Liam and Jude, they're doing what's called an Eden Project in the Wally district of Surrey, right? So much closer. So we were talking about something funded in Halifax and something funded and coached in Burlington and something that's happening now in Surrey. Um, It's a complicated district, Wally, right? but the Morgans are moving right in and joining them. They have good partners in sponsoring Moving Mission Forward member Granville Chapel, right, that you know about, and the Message Trust from England. So that's part of why I'm here. I, I love to push churches to grow towards the practice of interdependent particularity, right? I say, why couldn't we work some more together? I'll be talking about moving the mission forward Vancouver at a pastor gathering tomorrow in Vancouver um, saying, could Vancouver area churches that we know all get on side and maybe put some extra money into Eden Wally, for example. Let's get that thing planted down there in Surrey. We're doing this in 14 regions across Canada, believing that if Churches across the country can collaborate. Why not churches in various regions of the country? And a side benefit is that churches grow and thrive, even if they're only peripherally interested in church planting. The biggest study ever of church planting in the United States and a separate one in Canada were done last year, and both of them said that if churches were even interested in talking about planting, putting a little bit of money in, they themselves would grow and thrive so it's quite an intriguing thing that this always happens when churches are oriented to do to these new things that God wants to birth that's what we do we work away at church planting we also care about a partnering network so it's nice to be here and kind of get closer and be better friends um one final thing you have a copy of that newsletter, right? And so if you don't want to take the hard copy home, there's a a site that you can read it from. We just produce that three times a year. We're happy to send it to you. The key thing about it is don't read everything. Just be in touch, right? I'd way rather talk to you about this stuff after the service this morning or any other time. There's contact information. You can find it in there. Okay. The advertisement is done. You can all get back here with me. I'll take a drink. <clears throat> I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves on a town garbage heap and at a, at a crossroads of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek, and at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and where thieves curse and where soldiers gamble, because that is where he died, and that is what he died about, and that is where Christ's men ought to be and what church people ought to be about. Right? Do you you hear those wonderful words of George Morgan? You can go to that second slide, Amanda, if you want, right? Um, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace. Because that's where Jesus was crucified, right? At the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble. That's a little picture of a poster that came into my possession about when my first little girl was born and she's 36, right? Um, and it's been beside my, my desk in my office for all the years basically since. I think it's important, this little piece of prose by George MacLeod, poetic kind of prose by George MacLeod, because it reminds us of a particular Easter focus that sometimes I think we forget and we should never lose. It seems to me that sometimes at Easter we sort of move towards the cross up to the time of Easter. We think about Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem. Next Sunday, you may think about him entering the holy city, right? Um, Maybe spend some time in other weeks leading up to Easter, thinking about his final week. And then we jump to the resurrection, as well we should, right? We have to, of course, get there, and that's what matters to us in the most life-changing kind of way. But I'd like to get your eyes particularly focused on the cross today because Jesus says that is what's supposed to happen for humans to have kind of healing and life, right? They have to somehow look at the cross. My wife Margie and I just unpacked a bunch of books that we'd stored away and I opened up this uh, copy of Care of the Soul in the last couple of weeks. I hadn't seen it for a while. It has a nice little inscription to me and a picture of a young man whose whose funeral I officiated at a a long time ago. This fellow's partner, Peter, who was just a couple of years older than me and, and my friend, died a couple of years later, and that's now 21 years ago, right? So I'm talking about two guys who died 21 years ago. Peter and I had been on the faculty of Grand Prairie Regional College up in northern Alberta. We worked together for about a decade, the 1980s, but by 1995 my friend was dying from the ravages of HIV-AIDS, right, so this my friend Peter. God had dragged me kind of kicking and struggling back into the lives of him and his partner Terry in the picture. Two gay men who'd ended up in Edmonton where I was working my way as my next job as president of little Mount, tiny Mount Carmel Bible School. So I buried Peter in 1994 confident that he'd actually put his life into the hands of Jesus. And now I'm talking to you about Peter, the fellow who wrote the inscription. Okay? So we're talking about a man named Peter. 1995, and HIV was destroying Peter's 45-year-old body and, and life. So we were talking a lot about the next life, right, about God and about Jesus. And I remember one of the times when he said to me just this clearly, he said, Jay, I can't become a Christian. I'm gay. Right? Obviously now he didn't understand Christian theology yet, right? Because you don't have to be anything but a sinner to qualify to become a Christ follower, which means that we all qualify, just the same as Peter did, right? We are all those kind of people. I'm sure I could have explained this to him again in an appropriately gentle way and respectful way, Remember, those are the directions that brash old apostle Peter gives to us about dealing with people who aren't followers, right? We treat them with gentleness and with respect. But I was getting impatient with my friend Peter. It seemed to me like we were kind of running out of time. So I remember this. I said to him, Peter, that's the least of your problems, right? You're a miserable guy. Long as I've as I've known you, you've been grumpy and kind of snobby and self-centered, a bit of a diva, right? You've lost your best friend and partner. You have, a, you have a poor relationship with most of your family. You've got a rotten disease that's causing all kinds of painful infections, and you're probably going to die from it. There was lots of work to be done on antivirals in the mid-90s, right? I went on like that for quite a while and finished with a... Sort of nasty line, being gay may be the least of your problems, right? This is just, so what? And then I said, let me give you the Christian metaphor for what you need to do. We say that you come to the foot of the cross, that you get your eyes firmly fixed on that guy spiked up there, right? You look at him so intently because you need him so much, and eventually you just drop all the rest of it. Let it fall into his hands, which aren't holding on to anything at this point. Your stuff, your plans, some of your relationships, at least for a while, and your ego, and almost your identity, almost because we're, we're not Buddhists, right? He put it all into his hands, right? That's the seeing and the choosing that you have to do to finish this life well and live into the next world right? You know this, right? Lots of you are followers of Jesus. You just drop it all and see him where He what doing what he did for us. I even admitted to him that most of the rest of us Christians the next day sort of slip back to the scene and we pick up our materialism or our egocentrism or our broken heterosexuality, and of course the Spirit of God then enters into that long, Bumpy process of what those of us who know call sanctification, right? Gradually saving our day-by-day life, right? He justifies us, and you bump away at sanctification and eventually get to be with him. But at the beginning of the Christian life, and I would say continuing in the Christian life, there's something about seeing Jesus that is integral to being one of his followers. We have to see him for who he really is. Now, before I go on, I should say there was a happy ending for peter right he He only lived well not more than another year right but but i 'm confident i 'm seeing him in the next world, right This is rich stuff, like so many others, I use that picture of gazing up at the cross because Jesus introduced the idea to us right This comes directly from him. he did it in the words recorded in his biography that we call the Gospel of John, right? And it's in a chapter that lots of people know about because it includes John 3.16, right? about as famous a verse as as you can read. So I'm showing you the context, but let me just read to you verse 14. You can see 13 and 14, 15, 16 there as well. Verse 14 says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And right after that, you see John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. But that half a sentence that we call verse 14 says that in, in the same way as that ancient Hebrew prophet and Exodus leader Moses lifted a bronze pig snake up on a pole when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, Jesus would himself be lifted up for everyone to look at, right? Now you just heard the story read. I suspect that many of you remember the story from Numbers 21, right? The Israelites are being their usual unfaithful complaining selves and God in in actually a very rare move finally punishes these people, right? So often he just puts up with them. Snakes are biting them. Some of them are dying. The people begin to repent and everyone, including Moses, doesn't Numbers praise right? They call out to God. And God says, okay, here's how you'll be saved from these snakes. Make a bronze serpent, put it high on a pole. If someone gets bitten, they just have to look at it, and they'll live. They just have to look at that snake. Jesus says to Nicodemus, that's the same deal with me. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be stuck on a pole so that everyone who wants can see me. And if they really see me, they can have life. What he calls eternal life in verse 15 and 16. And, and he calls having our lives saved in John three seventeen. right? So this can happen for anybody because I'm going to be stuck up on a pole as well. Jesus says you get new life by really seeing me, by really understanding and aligning with who I am, getting a hold of what it is that I've come to do. And this is a regular metaphor for us. When we say we see something, we're talking about clearly understanding, right? Having insight into reality. Oh, I see it. Oh, I get it. Finally, I'm finally seeing what you're, what you're talking about. And when you really see who someone is, you've actually gotten past seeing just the surface, right? But you're actually kind of looking right into their soul when you see them really well. You're having a glimpse of their inner reality. You've seen a bit of the, of the soul. The and temporary culture uh, example is in the movie Avatar, right? The old James Cameron film from seven or eight years ago. When characters talking about seeing you, right? When you see someone, they mean deeply connecting in a sort of spiritual kind of way. Seeing who the person really is. Cameron hindered up the whole concept, right? But, but I think this is close to what we mean by seeing Jesus, really grasping who he is and what it means and aligning as a result of that. I, uh, I always love the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12 about the rich fool who stores up wealth instead of being rich towards God. Now, I like it, actually, not because of those end verses, but I like it because of the introduction. It says that someone in the crowd says to Jesus, tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. Right? Jesus just comes up to Jesus and says, my brother has to give me my share of the inheritance as well. Jesus says to the man, who made me a judge or arbiter between you? Who? I'm not, I don't have any official status here, Right? Jesus is saying, I've got no formal position. I have none of the normal authority that you're kind of giving to me in this world, right? But you seem to have realized that I'm something, right? You seem to have grasped that I'm something more, right? I think Jesus is saying, why are you staring down at your empty hands, right? Look up. Like, look way up. You know something's true about me. Look up and see who I am, because maybe I could do something that would change your whole life, not just fill some some empty hands. Right? Jesus is saying you're having a you're having an what's the old Larry Norman song it says. He's an unidentified flying object. We will meet him in the air, right? This man's having an encounter of the third or fourth or thousandth or millionth kind. He's meeting the ultimate person from outside of this world. And he's saying, I want some money, some stuff, right? Jesus is saying, look at me, right? Just have a good, clear understanding. Let me fill your vision. Now, I think that's what we're saying to each other at Easter time, right? Right? we're saying the church calendar has give us, given us an astonishing excuse to stop seeing everything else, to stop focusing on all the other things around us, the normal things, and to have our vision focused on Jesus and only on Jesus. That's the beauty of Lent, right? We can think about him non-stop if we want, anytime, time, but the calendar pushes it. But But that's not a simple assignment because we have all kinds of bad vision when it comes to Jesus and God, right? I think we have pictures in our minds of Jesus that come from classical art or from old movies, right? Ben-Hur and the greatest story ever told for people older than me and Jesus Christ Superstar for old hippies like me and maybe the shack for some millennials. I don't know. I haven't seen or read it, but... But, but like C.S. Lewis says in Screwtape Letters, right? We need to connect not to what I think thou art, but to what thou knowest thyself to be, right? Isn't that what we really want to see? Not to whom we think you are, Jesus, but to who you know yourself to be. That's the connection that we want. That's the vision of Jesus that we want to actually see, I suspect, this Easter. The real impact on our lives is going to be as we come to see him, for what he knows himself to be so let me quickly trash just a little of our vision of the human jesus right we'll go back to isaiah chapter 53 one of the primary old testament pictures of jesus right of this suffering servant it says in the old language for he shall grow up before him as a as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him, right? This is, that's what this servant is going to look like. The message says there was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. The voice, this is my wife Margie's favorite translation, says he didn't look like anything or anyone of consequence, right? He had no physical beauty to attract our attention. That's that's what the Bible says about this person, Jesus. Right? It wasn't all the, It wasn't something di- different that stood out. Some of you remember that the BBC had a forensic anthropologist take a shot at what Jesus might have actually looked like. Right? This was back in two thousand one. That's the picture he produced. I keep a copy of it because it kind of catches me. Right? He doesn't look like a movie star, does he? Isn't little Ted Neely and Jesus Christ superstar? Um, is just this average kind of person, no, no form or comeliness, nothing to make us take, take a second. Look, it's not a picture of Jesus, but this is what it could have been, right? I really appreciated a little book by Francis Spooford called Unapologetic. It's definitely not for everyone, but you might share it with a friend who's far away from faith and who won't be knocked back by some hard language in it, right? It's impolite, right? Um, I had trouble editing his words down because I think they amplify Isaiah 53 so well. Spooford says this What does he look like? Well, no idea. No one is ever going to write down a description. He's a male Jew in first century Palestine, so he's probably bearded, a bit smelly by modern standards, quite short. He may well have had bad or missing teeth. He's, he's in his early 30s in an age of hard labor and rudimentary medicine where the average life expectancy is 40-something, so he may well be rather worn out and middle-aged, but we don't know, and it really doesn't matter. We have faces and bodies. He has a face and a body. He's as human as we are, but if you meet him, you are also meeting the person, the being responsible for the universe. Do you see that language? Isn't that rich stuff? See, to be really impacted by Easter... To be really impacted by this man, we have to drop a bunch of our misconceptions and move on from there. We have to say to him, not be all else to me, save that thou art. And of course at Easter, there are two main things that stand out. He was a person just like us, right? This is who Jesus really was, just an ordinary person like you and me. And he is and was the being responsible for the universe, right? That's what's there at Easter time. That's what comes together, a broken little human body and God who, of course, cannot stay dead in the grave. Right? right? He's a broken little body and God who doesn't stay dead in the grave. Spooford, again, my favorite lines in his book. He says, when I pray, I'm not praying to a philosophically complicated absentee creator. I look across, not up. I look into the world, not out or away. When I pray, I see a face, a human face among other human faces. It's a face in an angry crowd, a crowd engorged by the confidence that it's doing the right thing, that it's being virtuous. The man in the middle of the crowd does not look virtuous. He looks tired and frightened probably and battered by the passions around him. But he is the crowd's focus and center. The center of everything, in fact. Because if you're a Christian, you do not believe that the characteristic action of the God of everything is to mold the course of the universe powerfully from afar. For a Christian, the most essential thing God does in time, in all of human history, is to be a man in the crowd, a man under arrest, and on his way to our common catastrophe. There he is, tired and battered by the passions around him. But he's the crowd's focus and center the center of everything, in fact. I think if we can just grasp who he is again this Easter, right? If we can just see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, right? Down here with us, crowned with glory and honor because he's God. That's the experiment I'd like to call you to for the next couple of weeks, if you haven't been doing it already. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Open the eyes of your heart. See him fully human, weak and torn and damaged, body given for us. Enter in and view as clearly as you can his power and glory and his resurrection, right? What a wonderful juxtaposition. <laughs> what a wonderful truth about who this person was. And then, back to the start and to finish, we, we raise the cross, Right? then we be like Moses and we lift up this person on the cross, in a sense, at home and at work and, well, everywhere else. I think that for many of us, the Great Commission happened 40 days after Easter, sort of as an afterthought, right? But, but my favorite version of it is in John chapter 20, right? So this is Easter night. These are the first resurrection followers in, in ever, right? They've, they've grasped the resurrection. And Jesus, that night, just hours after it happened, comes to them and he says in John 20, verse 21, right, I think, he says, peace be with you, right? He says, it's okay, relax. uh, Yes, I've sort of appeared miraculously here. I'm suddenly here with you. But peace be with you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you, right? The first thing these people hear is Now. The cross has to get raised out there where you are. Just like I came into this world and drew attention, right, by being lifted up. Now you're going to draw attention to me. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. I had a good breakfast with a young friend this week. A smart young entrepreneur, well under 30, right? But wanting to know and practice his faith in a way that influenced the people around him. But but shy to do more than good works as a witness, right? And here I am going to be preaching to you this Sunday saying, "No, no, the cross gets raised again at the center of the marketplace." I told uh, Jeremy how I manipulate myself into what eventually almost always ends up being good conversations. I said, "However you can, just try and slip in the name of Jesus." And he said, "Well, how do you how do you do that?" And I said, "Well, I sometimes say if we're talking about anything, I say, "Well, I wonder I wonder what Jesus would think." And then I just drop it and walk away or whatever. And and, and you know what? It starts conversations if you just get that name there. I couldn't think of how to show you this text, right? I didn't know how to, so I emailed it to myself, and I got a screen capture, and I put it in the slide because old people figure out ways to work around tech, right? So anyway, but here's the text that Jeremy sent me the the next day. He said, I just mentioned Jesus in a conversation with a bunch of coworkers, (laughs) I'm excited to hear where the conversations went went after that. Because I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves on a town garbage heap. And at a crossroads of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek. And the kind of place where cynics talk smut and where thieves curse and where soldiers gamble because that is where he died. And that is what he died about. And that is where Christ's men ought to be and what church people ought to be about. Amen.